Okay, so um, obviously next Friday night is Good Friday, so we won't meet next Friday night. So after tonight, we'll meet uh, in two weeks again. And there are notes there, but as I mentioned before, uh, if I were from a, from a text position, I would be working off of the sec. You remember the last time we met, I actually gave you two sets of notes yeah. stapled together. We would be working off of the second set of that notes, <coughs> those notes there. But I think what I'm going to do tonight is I'm just going to work off of the scripture and comment as we go along. And uh, uh, a few weeks ago, I think it was uh, three weeks ago, we took a lot of time to give a technical definition of what faith is defined from the biblical position, and we, we spent some time contrasting biblical faith from the common everyday faith, uh, and that it's something totally different. The faith that, uh, that you have when you get behind your car, that you're going to come home at night, or sit in a chair, it's not going to collapse, That's, that really doesn't have essence and nature in and of its own. It only exists as an attribute of you who are uh, placing your trust in that chair when you sit down that it's not going to collapse that's based upon experience and statistics that's not biblical faith biblical faith has it actually has being it is it's a thing uh, it's something that's communicated to God's people from God directly so it has substance and it has being and so we spent uh, we spent some time looking at that and then uh, the last time we met, we, we, we jumped off and, look and started looking at what this faith looks like in real life. Because it's not enough to, you know, it's not enough to define what, what biblical faith is. We have to see what it looks like in real life. And that's what the author to the book of Hebrews does after spending all this time talking about the superiority of the revelation of Christ to that of angels, to that of Moses, and then moving from there into the, the, uh, the comparison of his priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek, to the Levitical priesthood, and then uh, moves into the issue of faith. And so uh, it's important to see what it looks like. So the last time we met, we talked about three individuals. In Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, we read about uh, Abel. Abel offered to God a sacrifice that was acceptable to God, whereas, Cain, uh, whereas Cain's offering was rejected. And so Abel was a, uh, for, for lack of a better word, he was a shepherd. He raised sheep, and he gave his best to God. So he offered the blood sacrifice. So we can see that very early on the issue of, of a blood sacrifice, though it would not be codified from a biblical perspective until, until the giving of the law, the animal sacrifices were, were absolutely a part of the ancient world. So we looked at uh, Abel, then we looked at Enoch. Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, he was translated because um, oh, he had a testimony that he pleased God. And his, his pleasing to God was that he was someone who believed that God is. Now, there's one thing to believe that God is, right, that he exists. But it's another thing to actually live and structure your life uh, in accordance with the absolute belief and conviction and faith that God really is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That was the testimony of Enoch, is that he believed in God and structured his life. He followed God, uh, and he followed God because he believed that God was a rewarder of those who diligently sought him. And then we talked about Noah. Noah, you know, Noah was a guy who was commissioned to build a boat, to build an ark, right? The ark was, you know, was situated where the ark would be constructed was literally hundreds of miles from the nearest body of water. 
and yet Noah spelt, uh, he spent a hundred years building that boat, all the while still having to do everything that, that, uh, that other people did and still do today. And that's, uh, that's one of the things that I think we, you know, w sometimes when we're reading the scriptures, we tend to look at them as opposed to us, but we forget to, to examine it from the perspective that they were people who had responsibilities, they were people who had lives, they were people who, for lack of a better term, had bills to pay and all of those things. And so we tend to separate them. So what I want to do tonight is tonight we're going to start looking at Abraham, but I, I don't want to just look at it from the perspective, well, there's Abraham, this is what he did. But I want to kind of try and put ourselves, I want to try and see if we can look through the eyes of Abraham tonight as to what he was what he was asked to do by God throughout his life. So I'm going to begin in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 8 and I'll start there. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about him, right? So Abraham, first of all, uh, Abraham was a, he was a city dweller, okay? So he, he lived in Ur of the Chaldeans, which was qu quite the cosmopolitan era. So to kind of, kind of picture what Abraham would be like, so if you can imagine that you were living uh, in the penthouse, he was a wealthy man, he was a city dweller, and he was living the life of the upper crust, okay? So if you could imagine someone who lived in a penthouse apartment condo in downtown Boston or, in, or on the Lower East Side of Manhattan or wherever, that's who Abraham was. Abraham was a wealthy man, he was a respected man, he had a large family, and he was living in a city. And all of a sudden God appears to him and says, okay, I want you to leave your land, I want you to leave your family, and I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. Where? What land? No, you just go, and I'll show you as you go. So think about this. He was, he was, he was asked to leave the life that he knew. You know, I don't know, well, you guys are probably old enough, you remember the show Green Acres. You know Green Acres? You don't remember Green Acres, but, you know, uh, not Zsa Zsa Gabor, Ava Gabor would sing the theme song, you know, having to move from, you know, a penthouse in Manhattan to, you know, a podung hill out in the country in a broken down farm. Well, that, that's not far from what Abraham was asked to do. First of all, he was asked to leave much of what he owned behind and leave his family. Now, did Abraham obey? So no, we have to try and bring these guys to planet Earth. Did Abraham obey? Well, he went out, but he did take his father with him, didn't he? And he, didn't, he did take his nephew Lot with him too, didn't he? Furthermore, where did Abraham first end up, right? He ended up in Haran. Why Haran? Well, because Haran was the place where his father was from. So if you read in Acts chapter 7, Abraham went out. He tremendous faith in leaving everything behind, leaving all his wealth, leaving the balance of his family, leaving his lifestyle, and just going out, going from being a city dweller to being a Bedouin, right? Someone who just lives in tents and lives on the road. And he ends up in Haran, and in Acts chapter 7, uh, I he was in Haran for approximately two years. I think it was two years. Uh, I may be wrong on the number. It's either two or 20, until his father died. When his father died, God gave him his marching orders and told him to go south, right? Because Haran is actually up near the northern Syria, southern Turkey, what would be now modern Syria, the southern edge of Turkey on the Mediterranean Sea. 
and he stayed there. And then after his father died, now he starts moving south. So he went out not knowing where he was going. Just what? You just wh where, where do I walk? You just go in that direction, uh, Abraham. You just you just keep going, and I'll I'll show you where you have to go while you're going, right? That was a tough thing. Verse 9 says, By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. So, so when you read the story of Abraham, he never settled down. He spent his entire life from that point on as a, as a Bedouin, as someone who lived in tents. Why? Because he understood that while God had given him that land, he would not personally inherit it until the resurrection. You see? He knew that God had given him the land, but he wasn't going to get it until the resurrection. And so he never settled down. He moved from place to place. Okay, so by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him, of the same promise. Why? Why didn't he settle down? He, sh he certainly could have planted roots and settled down. Well, the next verse answers that question. For he waited for the city which, which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So that's, what he, that's, that's where he understood he would finally come into full possession of his inheritance was at the resurrection when the city of God, for lack of a better term, is established in Jerusalem. Okay, now let's talk about Sarah. Verse 11, by faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who, was, who had promised. Okay, so let's, uh, let's back up a little bit. So, so when you look at, when you look at, when you look at the biblical marriages, they all had problems. Right? There was no biblical marriage that was free from problems. And one of the primary problems that was, that was driving those marriages that you see that there are polygamous relationships, they always lead to problems. Right? So here's one. Here's, so here's one. Now we're talking about Sarah. So, so Sarah is, first of all, when she... When she hears, she's eavesdropping, right? She's eavesdropping through the tent, and she hears the angel of the Lord say, your wife Sarah is going to conceive and bear a son in, you know, in his seed. And what does she do? She laughs. She laughs about it, right? Now, how old was Sarah around this time? She was around 80 years old around this time, right? She was approximately 80 years old, and I think... I think Abraham was was getting up to being, you know, close to 100, if not 100. So just think about that. Well, you guys are still young, you know, so uh, you, it's hard for you to imagine that. But at 80 years old, that takes an act that takes an act of faith, right? Because biology is biology, right? And so and so she says, okay. And Abraham says, okay, and nothing happens, right? Nothing happens. I think it's about, I think, I think it's approximately 20 years from the time that the promise was given by the angel of the Lord to the time that Isaac was conceived. It was about 20 years. I'm pretty sure it was close to 20 years. She was old. Well, she was old, but just think about the frustration. So what does she do in her frustration? Does anyone remember? She's frustrated. You know, so what does she do? Her maidservant, Hagar, who is Egyptian, right? And so, and so 
Yeah, and it's a problem that's still plaguing planet Earth today, right? And so, so Hagar now conceives and brings forth a son, Ishmael, and now that provokes conflict between Sarah and Hagar, right? Because Hagar is not, she's not a, she's not a wife, right? She's not, she doesn't have the status of wife. She doesn't have the status that Sarah has, and yet she begins to, to, to be bitter against Sarah because she believes that she should have the same, actually higher status than, than Sarah because she bore Abraham a male heir, which Sarah was not able to do. So that led to all kinds of conflict there. But let's talk about Abraham and his, and his conflicts, right? So Abraham finally gets down to the land where he's going, right? He's walking about the land there, and he's, you know, he's got, and he's got Sarah. And lo and behold, there's a famine in the land. Wait, wait a minute, God, you told me to come here. And there's a famine now. There's a famine in this land. So what does Abraham do? Abraham goes off to Egypt. And evidently, Sarah was some sort of extraordinary beauty, even in her, even in her elderly years, because he feared that he would be killed and she would be taken into Pharaoh's harem. Because you see, even the Egyptians in those days did not believe in divorce. So the only way that Pharaoh could take her into his harem is he would have to be killed. So they would kill Abraham and take Sarah and deliver her to Pharaoh's harem. So Abraham says, tell them you are my sister. And there are all kinds of problems that arise from that. And, and uh, who makes the same mistake? Was it Isaac or Jacob? I think it was. I think it was. I think it was Isaac who made the same mistake. Yeah. That Isaac made the same mistake later on. So you see that they were flawed people, just like we're flawed people. But there was something that kept moving them in the right direction, and that is faith. Okay. All right, so let me recap what I've read. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah also herself received strength to conceive, to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him who was faithful. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead. Now, what does that mean, as him as good as dead? So what, what you have there in those two verses is you have language that says that, that both Sarah and Abraham, fertility-wise, were dead. They were no longer able, they were no longer able to produce an offspring. But because they believed in God, because of their faith, God made it possible for them to conceive. Okay. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in the multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. These all, verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And if truly they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Okay, 
So now that begs the question before we go any further, who are the these that verse 13 speaks, speaks of? Who does that refer to? Well, it refers to all of the people that we have discussed prior to this verse. It speaks to Abel. It speaks to Enoch. It speaks to, it speaks to Noah. It speaks to Abraham. And it speaks to Sarah. So they all understood. The faith that they had all understood that God had made specific promises to them, but they would not necessarily receive those, those, those promises in this life. You see, they were able to see through the veil, to see through the fact that there's more to existence than just this life. This life is just the beginning of it. And so that's what drove Abraham to never put down stakes in the land that God had promised to him because he knew that he would not come into full possession of that land in this life, but it would only come in the resurrection. That's when he would come into full possession of that land. And so he kept moving and never, never, never planted roots. He lived, he spent the rest of his life, he went from being a wealthy city dweller to being a Bedouin dwelling in tents for the rest of his life, wandering around. Okay. The faith of the patriarchs. Now let's talk about um, verse 17. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Okay, so now there's, let's talk about this from, so for a moment, right? So when we, think of I, when we think of Isaac, we think of a little three or four year old boy. No, Isaac was probably somewhere in the vicinity of 15, 16, 17 years old at this time. Now, this is where it gets really hard for Abraham. Why? Because God was asking him to do something that Abraham knew that God was opposed to, and that was human sacrifice. Wait a minute. You're asking me to sacrifice my son to you when you are against human sacrifice. We don't often think about that. But he went ahead. Now think about at some point, Isaac figured out what was going on too, right? So there was faith there in Isaac as well because he certainly was big and strong enough to be able to resist his father putting him on the altar of sticks and tying him down and plunging a knife into his chest, right? Okay. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. Just think about what's going through. This guy said, wait a minute. You're saying the promises through Isaac, and yet you're asking me to do something that you and you yourself are opposed to, and that is human sacrifice. So you want me to sacrifice my son, who you are now telling me to do, and it is through him that the promises are supposed to come. And the, the answer to what propelled him to go along with that is in verse 19, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. <clears throat> so what does this faith look like? Okay, so let's just stop right there. And you guys help me out with this, right? already gave you some things with, with Abel. Abel gave God his very best. He withheld nothing from God. He gave God his very best. Enoch, Enoch structured his whole life around his belief that God was real and that he was a rewarder of those who diligently sought him. Noah obeyed God when there was no logical reason to obey God. You want me to build this boat in the middle of, you know, hundreds of miles from, from, you know, the nearest body of water. I still got to feed my family. I still got to do all these things. And you want me to build a boat? And he did it. Abraham left the city life, left his affluent life in Ur 
to go to someplace he did not know where he was going. So w what can we take about that from that, just that small piece of Abraham's life that he, he chose to obey God when he did not know where that journey was going to take him, right? And I, I, I would say that that is the thing that we can look at there, is that Abraham chose to obey God and to follow God when he did not know where that road was going to lead him. And that is the life of a disciple. If you truly take discipleship seriously. Now, I want to point out that when we hear disciple, we equate it with the word believer, but the two are not necessarily the same. The, the two are not necessarily the same. You can be a believer, but not a disciple, right? So, so the path of a disciple, if you make a serious commitment to being a disciple of Jesus Christ, you're going to follow him, and that's going to take you down a road where you don't know where it's going to lead you ultimately. But you do know that God is leading you on a path that he knows is going to bring him glory, and it is going to be good for you. But you don't know what kind of valleys he's going to lead you through. Or you don't know what kind of mountain peaks or how much suffering you're going to have to go through. I read a, I came across a quote, I think it was last week by A.W. Tozer, uh, or it was either A.W. Tozer or C.S. Lewis, uh, and the quote was, it is doubtful whether, whether God can truly bless a man until he has hurt him deeply. Right? It is doubtful whether, the, whether God can bless a man until he has first hurt him deeply. Right? And so that, that God brings suffering is that, is that being a disciple actually involves suffering. God will take you through suffering. Right? So, so Abraham, in the, as we know, the journey was not all roses for him. He encountered many problems, you know, not the least of which was his falling out with his nephew Lot and the journey. And so he suffered. <laughs> you, you don't go from living in, you know, in a palace to living in a tent without having a few rough days along the way. Okay. So that's what we can say about that. God calls us. The walk of faith or the biblical faith that we've been talking about is that faith which gives you, I'll call it the propellant or the juice, right? To walk in a path of discipleship, following God, where when you don't know where that journey is going to take you. Yes. Yep. Yeah, and and we'll all experience those days, right? We all experience those days. Okay, so let's let's just put a bracket around that. Biblical faith enables the child of God to follow God when he don't when he doesn't know. We we know the ultimate destination, right? And we're assured of the ultimate destination, but we don't know about the that what's what lays in front of us between A and B, right? Between when we start and when we end up in eternity. We don't know what awaits us on that road, but we follow anyway. And the faith, biblical faith, gives us the propellant to be able to make that journey. Okay, so let's talk about now, um, let's talk about Sarah for a moment. What about Sarah? What is it about Sarah's expression of biblical faith that we can appropriate to our life of faith? Yeah, she believed in the impossible, right? The 
Yeah, well, well, because she was human. And that's, that's, I think the author goes to great pains to make sure that we understand here that it was nothing of them. They were human. It was the biblical faith, the faith that God had imparted to them that allowed them to do these things in spite of their humanity. So Sarah, was, so Sarah had faith to believe in that which was impossible. She was past the age of childbearing, and, and uh, the text clearly says that Abraham, from a reproductive perspective, was dead. But yet, she believed in the impossible, and she conceived, right? So let's put a bracket around that. Yes? It was some 20 years, 20 to 25 years, if my memory serves me correctly. So you imagine, I, I mean, I've known some young couples. You know, I, I've crossed them over the years that they want to start having babies. And if they're not having babies in six months, seven months after they're married, they're already up in arms, right? And, you know, I mean, that's just the way, and understandably so. But imagine... Sarah being 80, Abraham being close to 100, God is saying, you're going to have a child. And that child is going to be the one through whom the promises would flow, from you to that child. So get busy. So you'd think, you know, after maybe a few months, maybe after a year or two, they kind of get discouraged, which they kind of did. Actually, I don't think Abraham did. I think it was Sarah who finally said, and he gave Hagar to Abraham, right? But it was some 20 to 25 years between the time, and they, they even in their frailty, even in their humanity, they still were able to believe and accomplish the impossible because of their faith. Okay. Now let's talk about Abraham and Isaac. So, so we'll put a bracket around Sarah. Her biblical faith enabled her to believe in the impossible. Okay? All right. Now let's, let's, we've talked about Abraham. Now let's drop down to Abraham and Isaac, the Abraham and Isaac story of offering up. I, I, you missed it, so I think you missed it. I mentioned this before you came in. God, Ab God asked Abraham to do something that Abraham knew God did not condone. God never condoned human sacrifice, yet God was asking him to sacrifice his only son, right? And yet Abraham trusted him. Okay, so, so what can we, what can, how can we take that story and, and apply it to how biblical faith can work in our life. Let me just say this. It can work in our life in this way, right? It enables us to do these. It enables the potential. Let me, I want to stress that. It enables the potential for us to accomplish these kinds of things, right? did it you know he gathered all the the, the wood to, for a sacrifice and the, even Isaac was like we're missing something we're missing our, the, the, the lamb uh, you know and he still you know ask one of our faithful girls like hey you want to be sacrificed they want to be taken off so, so he still gathered for that yeah could you imagine trying to get Roberto up on <laughs> a pile of sticks <laughs> or Pavel but this is what he was dealing with. So, you know, and he still went with it. And then, but when he, and he took a servant, it's like, oh, we will be back. And so even when the, he went up 
he told the servant that he knew he was coming back. It didn't matter what he was going, whether he went through it, he knew that his son was coming back with him, no matter what. Right, not necessarily, not necessarily in the same way. He believed that if, if, if God actually would have him go through it, go through it, go through with it, that God would raise his son from the dead. So he was second and he was not like, I'm coming back with him. It's not it like, he didn't say, I will be back. We be back with him. Yeah. So that's why knowing that your only son, I mean, yeah. That's so, so what, you know, but there's something there that we need to take away that we can take and and apply to our journey, right? So you, you notice this is all a journey, right? It's all talking about the journey. And the journey is, you know, the call comes at some stage in this life, but then God sets us on a journey. But that journey takes us into eternity, right? So, so there's... So if you're a child of God, you're going to end up in eternity. That you're destined for the kingdom of God. There's no doubt about it. But there is, there are, there, there are tests and potentials for obedience and disobedience, right? Which has no bearing on salvation, but it does have bearing on rewards in the kingdom of God. Right? So biblical faith gives us the potential right to walk in the same way but it does not necessarily have to be it's not necessarily that way in the life of every single child of god right so what can we take from this episode this little snippet episode here of abraham offering up isaac and translate it into how that type of faith, that expression of faith, could work itself out in our lives. Or take me away. Yeah, and actually, I have faith both worlds in the past. Like, I cannot do it anymore. Like, I cannot. This is going long enough. Um, and suffering, and then to a point, like, or you put something, you change something in my life here, or you put the right person, and the humbling, like, it, it, you keep asking. You don't know how long it takes. I remember hearing those words over and over and it took us over two years to finally land it. It took us years. Look where I am now. Praise the Lord. Doug and then Mark. father was going to do the right thing and his father saw that there was an out so for who oh my goodness I don't think when I was a teenager that was not my <coughs> mindset my attitude Mark and today you know ultimately the children are Okay, well, here's, 
let's go in this direction for a couple minutes. What if God asks you to do something that on the surface appears to be against what you know of his revealed will and character? Well, no doubt. Have this is I think this is important here, right? Because what Abraham understood, at least he perceived that God was asking him to do something that he knew God himself was against. But it only looked that way. It wasn't really that way. Right? So now think about can anyone think about any situation such as that in your life where you believe that God was asking you to do something that didn't make sense, it didn't seem to line up with what you know of his character and will? That's a tough one. Yep. I think that's the bigger thing that we don't really connect very well. Well, well no, but we, we can't take the human emotion out of it either. No. We can't take the fear and the anxiety. And don't forget, all the time while he's going through that, while he's making the journey, it's not as if he's in a bubble. He's being attacked by demonic forces as well. He's undergoing a great intense spiritual battle. Right, so there's all kinds of confusion and turmoil rolling around inside of him because he was, after all, human. But he finally came to the point where he said, you know what, if this is what God wants me to do, I know that he's capable of raising him from the dead. And that's, it was that faith that kicked in. That's what it is, guys. It's that faith that kicks in in those moments of darkness when you can't see your way through. That's when it kicks in. And I believe that that's when it kicked in with Abraham, right? Because that journey was not a five or ten minute journey. There was a span of time where he made the journey to where he left his home to Mount Moriah, where he was going to sacrifice his son, where he's all this stuff is rolling around inside of him. And you know, you know that at the same time he's being attacked by Satan. Trying to, trying to get him to doubt God's character. Right? Well, it was, but did he ever question God in the middle of that testing? No, no, no he certainly did. He's, he, certain, he certainly did. He certainly did question God on that. And, and, there's, and, and you know what? But God, I think God respected that, that he was honest about it. What have I done wrong? That you're doing this, I'm paraphrasing, you know, some of the refrains. What have I done wrong that you're doing this to me? I would have been better off, a stillborn child, better off than I am right now. Why are you doing this to me? Come on, I, let me hear what it is that I've done wrong. I mean, that's, you hear that throughout Job. You think, is it possible that Abraham had the same kind of thoughts flowing through his mind? as he's marching to sacrifice his only son, that God had promised him would be the one through whom the seed would come. No, of course not, because Abraham had a halo over his head, right? And so that, that's important to keep in mind in the midst of all of this, that these people were human. So I, I think if you, if you 
if you look deep enough, you will find things like this in your life, right? And I, th I think that's the thing, is that, that it only looks like on the surface it's contrary to God's will because we can't see the whole picture, right? We're only seeing part of the mosaic. We're not seeing the whole thing. I'm in a much better place now, certainly spiritually, than I was back then. And I wouldn't, looking back, that is the best path that God could have walked me down. The best path, yes. So we see in, in, in that particular scenario that they had a they had multi-day multi journey. By the time they get to to something like the base of Moriah, right? Joseph resolves, and then uh, uh, Abraham is resolved. We will come back, right? He's already been through whatever valley he actually put him through, and he was resolved to go through what God had. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm not so convinced that the we will come back statement was not just a tactic, a tactic to, to answer the immediate questions of the servants who went with him, right? So because we know that Abraham was not beyond line, okay? Again. We have to make sure we're not wa whitewashing these people, right? But, but by the time we got to the mountain, Isaac did, he did put Isaac up on the altar. Yep. And pulled back his arm. No, no, no he, never, he never had any doubt that he was going to carry through, right? There was some doubt, I think, at least humanly speaking, as to the outcome, right? I don't think he imagined that God would stop him at the last second right because in his reckoning he was going to go through with it and God was going to raise his son from the dead right. right okay all right so and that's I guess that's the last point I want to make when we look at this part of Abraham's life is sometimes it seems like God is asking you to do something or to walk a path that seems to be contrary to what you understand God's character and will is. But it only looks that way. It's not that way. God doesn't contradict his nature. He doesn't contradict his character. Right? Okay. I think we'll stop there. Uh, let's see. How far did I get? Well, we'll stop there, and we'll meet in, in uh, a couple weeks again. So let's just recap what we've got so far, because this is really the important part. What was it about Abel and his expression of faith? He gave his very best, okay? Enoch, right? Because he believed that God was a rewarder of those who diligently sought him, right? What about Noah? Yep. Now let's move to Abraham and, you know, living on Park Avenue in Ur of the Chaldeans and getting called to go just start walking, leave his family, leave his riches, leave everything and just walk. Yep. And now we come to Sarah. She believed that God could do the impossible. And finally, Abraham and Isaac.
Okay, so now what our job is at this point is to, what, does, what do those principles look like in our life? What do they look like in our life, right? So let's start with Abel. Do we give God our very best? Yes. Is it on camera? Yeah, it's on camera, right? Do we give? No, you don't. A, don't answer, right? <laughs> Do we give God our very best? Do we make it our life's journey? And that's what exactly this is. It's a journey, right? Do we make it our life's journey to seek after God, to, to pursue God, right? Do we, uh, do we see him as a rewarder? Do we take up the mission that God gives us, right? God gives us a mission to accomplish. Do we give it our very best even when we still have all the other things that need to be done in our life, right? You got to work. You got to pay the bills. You got to keep the cars running, right? Do we do that? Noah had to do all that. Okay. What about when God sets us out on a metaphorical or sometimes a literal journey? Well, we don't know where we're going, where we don't know where we're going to end up. How do we deal with those situations, right? What about when God is asking us to do the seemingly impossible? <clears throat> and finally, when it looks like God is, this, and this is the part, this is, when it looks like God is asking you to do something, that seems to contradict what his word is saying or his character. He's not contradicting what he's saying. You're misunderstanding what he's saying.